Lord, open our hearts and mind by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those who he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they content their enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. And thank you so much, Tessa, for reading scripture this morning. Uh, It's Children's Sunday, in case you missed in case you missed it. <laughs> and obviously we're thinking about children, and this morning I just want to take a little extra time and think about not only children, but about family. And what's the true nature of family as God teaches us about family? And this morning I've been thinking, I've been thinking for the past few months actually about this psalm, Psalm 127, which is a very well-known uh, psalm, especially we think about it when we think about families. And there are these very famous verses, especially the last three verses of Psalm 127, that say this, sons are a heritage from the Lord, children are a reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth, and blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. That's a verse that a lot of people quote, a lot of Christians quote, and I think actually we we tend to misunderstand what God is teaching us through these verses. If we read them alone, if we ignore the context, then we start to think at least one of two things. We might start thinking, one, it means if I'm just obedient to God, then I will enjoy the blessing of children. And the converse uh, can be really toxic, which is if I don't have kids, especially if I want kids, it's probably because I'm not being obedient enough to God. That's not what scripture teaches. That's a lie, actually. But that's one thing that's really easy to misunderstand. And secondly, we might tend to think, well, gosh, I just need to have as many children as possible. That's not actually what this psalm is teaching. This morning, we're gonna, we're gonna, it's going to be a little bit shorter because we've got other service elements going on, but I just want to reflect on the nature of family. What does God teach about family? What does God teach about true family, especially through Psalm 127? Now, this is known as a psalm of ascent, a psalm of ascent. And the reason it's called a psalm of ascent, not, not like a penny ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T, going up, ascending. It's a psalm of ascent. There's this block of psalms towards the end of Psalm 120 through 134 that are called the Psalms of Ascent. Think of it almost like a record or an album of 15 songs that ancient Jews used to sing as they were going to Jerusalem. They would often make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which was their capital city. And Jerusalem, as it turns out, sits high upon a hill. It's about half a mile above sea level. So as they were ascending the hill to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs. It's like they would put this playlist on as they were driving. So you put a playlist on when you go on a road trip. That's kind of what this was about. And if you read the Psalms of Ascent, they're all very short, actually. You could read all 15 in like 10 or 15 minutes. 
If you read them all as one unit, you start to see a few distinct themes emerge. Maybe the most profound is this, that God is in control. God is in control, which is really, really helpful and reassuring when it feels like life is out of control. That's a message we need to hear and need to be reminded of. And we see that here in Psalm 127. Look how it starts. It starts, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, its watchmen stand in guard in vain. In other words, we need God as part of our lives. God is in control. And we even see it. There's this weird shift that goes from talking about a city to talking about families and what exactly is going on there. But even in that shift, we see it. That sons, it says, are a heritage from the Lord. That doesn't, by the way, mean daughters aren't a heritage. Okay, that's not what it's saying. But sons are a heritage from the Lord and children are a reward from him. Now, we don't use the word heritage all that often but, but think about it, it's close to, heritage is closely related to the word inheritance. How do you get an inheritance? What do you have to do to earn an inheritance? How hard do you have to work to earn or deserve an inheritance? In the most ideal world, you don't. Like, it's just because of who you are. It's just because you are so-and-so's child that you receive, and it's just a pure gift, so this psalm is not teaching that, that children are, are somehow a reward for, for you just being obedient. That doesn't make God into a generous father. That makes him into either like a vending machine or a very critical supervisor who's just waiting for you to slip up. And by the way, scripture is full of faithful men and women, righteous men and women who either didn't or couldn't have children. So what is going on here? Let's look back at the first two verses because this is so important. We're going to look at the broad context of these. It starts like this. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. The context of this is a city. Not just a small individual nuclear family, but a whole community of people. This is a community psalm. In fact, all the psalms of ascent are community psalms. And we see this in all of them. Let's just consider the one that comes right before and right after. In Psalm 126, it starts, the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. That's not just one family. That's a whole people. That's God's people. And Psalm 128 ends, it actually talks more about children than it ends, peace be to Israel. The Psalms of Ascents in Psalm 127 teach us that children are a blessing, a deep and real blessing, but the ancient authors did not have nuclear family in mind when they were writing this. They had God's family in mind as they were writing this. For ancient Jews, this meant Israel, which is the people of God. For us today, for Christians, this is the church. And this is why we talk so much that church is a family, that church is a family. And we don't just mean, I mean, it is metaphor and it's a good metaphor, but it's actually more than just metaphor. Somehow, this is family. 
That's one reason that we feel so much joy when we see all the kids lined up here singing or mostly singing and some of them are babysitting one another and, and the pastor's daughter is just wandering down the aisle and, and, and there's joy, right? Because there's, there's family and there are relationships in all of this. It's a misreading to think that God is only concerned about nuclear families. In fact, the nuclear family is actually a very recent and Western innovation, at least what we think of as the modern nuclear family. In Psalm 127, we learn that children are a reward not only for an individual family, but for the whole community, the whole family of God, the whole church. And this is going to have implications for how we relate to children in our church. Let me just read one last quote before we move on. This is from Rodney Clapp. He's a sociologist, well-known sociologist, and he studies families. This is from a book he wrote called Families at the Crossroads. He writes this, the family, and here he's talking about kind of the nuclear or the biological family. He says, the family is not God's most important institution on earth. The family is not the social agent that most significantly shapes and forms the character of Christians. The family is not the primary vehicle of God's grace and salvation for a waiting and desperate world. The church is God's most important institution on earth. The church is the social agent that most significantly shapes and forms the character of Christians. And the church is the primary vehicle of God's grace and salvation for a waiting and desperate world. This is not to say that individual families or biological families or nuclear families aren't important. They are. But it is to say that we are not to so prioritize our own individual biological families that we forget that this family is a real, meaningful family. Now, here's why this matters. This matters for at least two good reasons. One, it offers encouragement. And two, it helps to provide accountability for us. Let's think about the encouragement first. There are some of you here, even this morning, who either don't have kids and really wish you did, or you do have kids, but your kids aren't here and you wish they were, or you have kids, but your family lives very far away and you wish you could worship with them, and there's a certain amount of pain that comes with that, I know, and you feel this dull ache, even in some sense week after week. If the church is true family, if this is real family, then in some sense, the thing you most long for is in part sitting right under your nose. And you can be a real, true, meaningful father or mother or grandfather or grandmother figure to the children right here. Not just kind of one of those nice adults, but family. It offers encouragement and it provides accountability. It's a reminder, it's a little bit of a challenge to us, maybe to all of us. And a reminder not to focus so myopically just on our own blood relatives, even on Sunday mornings at church. So whether you're a grandparent or whether you're a young 30-something with a couple of young kids here on your own, Scripture teaches that we all have a role in forming and shaping 
all of the children and students who are here, even this morning. Very personally, that means I am not only Elliot and Joanna's dad. It means that I have a role in nurturing and forming and shaping the lives of all the children and students here. And that's not just because I'm the pastor. That's because I'm a Christian. That's true for each of us. Because the church is the true and lasting family of God. Now, that all sounds abstract. It is abstract. You may be on board, but think, so what? One of the things that we're seeing, even in the past, especially the past year and a half, and those of you who've been here for longer than a year and a half know exactly what I'm talking about, is a family boom at Middle Street. And I can't explain it other than to just thank God for it. It's been a really sweet season for us. But one of the challenges that means for us as a church is how do we grow into becoming more and more of the family church that God is making us and more and more into the church family that God is making us? When we remember that this is real, true family, it helps. And I know it can be overwhelming. It can be really over. You might think, I'm not trained. I don't know how to interact. I haven't interacted with a kid in a long time. What if they don't think I'm cool? What if a teenager looks at me kind of weird? Look, teenagers are just intimidating to everybody, okay? So, like, if you're intimidated by teenagers, so am I. Um, That's just life. That's just life. And teenagers, you should know, by the way, that we're as intimidated by you as you are of us. So it's it's like animals in the wild. We're all just afraid of each other. Um, Like, we don't know. We're kind of bumbling through this and trying to figure it out. You might also be thinking, gosh, there are so many kids here, and they're all young, and I can't learn that many names. And even if I could, like, they are like bolts of lightning in the fellowship hall, and I can't even pin them down to, how, how would I keep track and learn all of these new names? Let me just offer a couple of suggestions. This, this isn't gospel. This is Bible. This is, just, this is just practical help. How do we figure out, how do we flesh out how to become more and more the family of God? I read a couple months ago about something that I found so helpful called the five-to-one principle. The person who wrote about it is an author named Kara Powell. Uh, she is a sociologist and a researcher. She's the, probably one of the top re- researchers in America Uh, She's at Fuller Seminary in California who studies the spirituality of children and teenagers. And she suggests something called the five-to-one principle. It goes like this. Uh, When you're going to, nowadays, even preschools send out literature or, or primary schools or colleges, any school, when you're evaluating a school, you evaluate the school based on the student to teacher ratio, right? And, and they'll tell you, oh, we have, we have nine students per teacher, Or we have five students per teacher, and the the lower that ratio is, in other words, the fewer students per teacher, the better. She suggests, what if churches took that notion and flipped it and thought not so much about a kid-to-adult ratio, but about an adult-to-kid ratio? And her suggestion is, what if every church strove for a five-to-one adult-to-kid ratio? In other words, what if every kid in a church knew that there were five adults in that church who cared about them and who knew their name and who would ask them how their week has been and ask them what they're not looking forward to in the upcoming week and that test or that game or that recital. What if there were five adults for each kid who could just make a meaningful connection? It doesn't have to be really, really deep, but just something intentional and meaningful. 
You think that would make an impression on a kid? Now, just some quick back-of-the-envelope math. On an average Sunday, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 or 75 people here. So let's call it 75, because that, that makes this point really, really well. So let's just assume. Assume there are 75 people here on a Sunday, and assume 15 of them are children. That makes 60 adults and 15 kids. Math majors, you know, you've already done this math in your head. That's an instant four-to-one ratio. Easy. Like, without even trying. So what if, you know, people travel, and not everybody's here every week, and I understand. What if every adult at Middle Street said, I'm just going to adopt, and we're not going to systematize this, and there's not going to be sign-ups or a paper trail, but we just decided I'm going to adopt, so to speak, two kids who are not my own kids, and they're not in my family, and I don't know them yet, maybe two new kids. And I'm going to just be intentional about meeting them, learning their name, asking them about their week, giving them a big hug and telling them I'm so glad they're here. Maybe I find out what their favorite candy is and then, and then when I see their name pop up in the, in the birthday list in the newsletter, I'm going to have a bag of M&Ms or Sour Patch Kids ready for them. What if every kid, if, if we all took two, by the way, that's like an eight to one ratio. What if every kid knew, not, not literally, but just subconsciously, there are between five and eight adults here who really love me and care for me. Do you think that would make an impression? That helps take the pressure off of us because maybe you feel like, I can't learn 15 or 20 names of new kids all at once, but can you learn two? Can you learn two? And by the way, I know some of you already do this, and some of you already know every kid here by name, and that's wonderful. This isn't so much for that. It's especially, I hope it's helpful for those who might feel a little bit overwhelmed and don't know where to start. You know, I remember um, going to church when I was in high school and going to church, and Brian Jacks, this adult, I don't know, 30, 40 years old, something like that, took the time to just meet me and get to know my name. And he found out that I was a cross-country runner. I was a cross-country runner in high school, and he had run and been a runner in high school. And so every week he would come up after church and just say, hey, do you, you have a meet this week? How did it go? What was your time? How would you feel about it? What was the course like? Now, we had, we had nothing else in common. And in fact, I never even saw, he did like the bare minimum in a sense. I never, he never had me over to his home. I never saw him outside of this. Just touching base every Sunday. And I have not been in touch with him since I graduated high school. But I still remember his name. And I still remember just how meaningful it was that every Sunday, Brian Jacks, this adult with whom I had nothing else in common, was going to know me by name. Because when you feel seen, you feel loved. When you feel seen, you feel loved. Research demonstrates that the single most, the single kind of age range when a person is most likely to come to know Jesus and have a personal relationship with Jesus is between the ages of four and 14. And it's not even close. In fact, you are three times more likely to come to know Jesus between ages 4 and 14 than any other time in your life. Three times more likely. By the way, this time when you're second most likely is between 14 and 24. And then the the odds just go down after that. This age, children and teenagers, is the single most strategic, important time in the life of a person when we think about their spiritual formation. 
There is no better time to demonstrate the love of Christ simply by investing in, and it doesn't have to be something every day. But what if we all just pick two and make sure they feel seen and loved? What if we commit to knowing them and praying for them? Because this is the family of God. Let me add just one last plug here. Sundays are, um, this is, First Sundays of the month, we're experimenting with not having nursery and junior church, so everybody's together, and, and I know it's chaotic, and that's okay. Like, family is just chaos sometimes, and we just lean into that. That's okay. But sometimes I know it feels so chaotic, and I miss that person, or how do I consider coming to the other stuff throughout the week we do too? In the summertime, twice a month, starting next week, we, we have a picnic. Just everybody goes to a picnic lunch after church on Sundays at Prescott Park. Come to the picnic. We have a game night coming up in a few weeks. Come to the game night on June 24th. Come to the July 3rd cookout. All of these events we do, and often I know we build them as family events, and maybe that, maybe that language is even misleading because we think, we see family and we think nuclear family. No, this is church family. This is for all of us. Come to whatever it takes so that all of us can be a part in nurturing and growing the family of God. When we feel seen, then we feel loved. When we feel seen, we feel loved. We know this because Jesus has come into our life. And as Christians, we know and we believe that Jesus has seen us. And he has seen all of us, which a lot of us wish he wouldn't. A lot of us wish there were parts that Jesus wouldn't see in our life. And Jesus says, I see all of it and I love you. Jesus has seen us, and he has loved us, and as God's family, we get to see and love one another. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we rejoice that you have seen us, and you have loved us. And even when when our life feels like chaos, you have still seen us and loved us. So teach us to see and to love one another, and especially the children and the students and the teenagers among us, so that they too might know that they are seen and loved by you. We ask these things in the precious and the powerful name of Jesus, who taught his followers to pray, saying,